Welcome to the Election Ride Home for Friday, August 2nd, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, Klobuchar makes the September debate, what we know about that September debate, the wave of Republican retirements in the House, the ratings are in for those CNN debates, Gravel's campaign is winding down, and what happens when a candidate drops out but has money left over. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up today, as predicted, Senator Amy Klobuchar has become the next candidate to qualify for the September and October DNC debates. She announced the news this morning in a tweet, writing, quote, We did it. We made the fall debates. My approach on the stage was to take it to Donald Trump and not each other. The result? Small donations poured in, and now more than 130,000 people have contributed to our grassroots campaign. Thanks, and let's keep it going. End quote. This makes her the eighth qualified candidate along with Biden, Booker, Buttigieg, Harris, O'Rourke, Sanders, and Warren. As we've discussed, Castro and Yang are right on the bubble, and I expect them to make it to those debates, which would mean we would then be at 10. There are several other campaigns that totally could make it, so the September debates may indeed be split into two nights. Speaking of that... Let's talk about what we know about that September debate. Now, I know you're sick of hearing about debates, and I'm sick of talking about them, so good for all of us that this won't be a long analysis. Okay, the debate will be hosted by ABC News and Univision, and will be held in Houston, Texas, at Texas Southern University, which is a historically black university. It will be televised and streamed, though I don't have any details on what that streaming part will look like. It's scheduled for both September 12th and 13th, which are a Thursday and Friday. Note that if not enough candidates qualify, they may cut the 13th and just do a one-night debate. It's unclear to me what the threshold for cutting a night would be, though personally I would be real interested to see, like let's say, two nights with six people on the stage on each night. Now, in order to qualify, candidates must meet two dramatically higher bars than the previous debates. They need 130,000 unique donors, including 400 donors in each of 20 states and they also need to hit 2% in each of four qualifying polls. By the way, the DNC is rounding percentage points in those polls, so technically a candidate only needs 1.5% to round up to two. Anyway, all of this needs to happen by August 28th. As I just mentioned, rather than 20 candidates earlier this week, only eight currently qualify, though we've still got the remainder of August to go. And that's pretty much all we know right now about September. The October debate will have the same qualification thresholds, so in theory, a candidate could fail to reach the September debate stage, but remain in the race and then qualify and show up in October. Stranger things have happened. Meanwhile, in the land of Congress, summer break has begun for both chambers. They'll return on September 9th, but for now, our representatives are back in their districts. For many, this is a moment to reflect on what's next for their legislative agendas. For others, it is time to call it quits. Yesterday evening, Texas Representative Will Hurd announced on Twitter that he would retire from Congress after completing his term and would not seek re-election. He wrote two tweets on the matter, and I will read them here. Quote, 
I have made the decision to not seek re-election for the 23rd Congressional District of Texas in order to pursue opportunities outside the halls of Congress to solve problems at the nexus between technology and national security. I left a job I loved as an undercover officer in the CIA to meet what I believe to be a need for new leadership in Congress on intelligence and national security matters. I wanted to help the intelligence community in a different way. End quote. He also wrote a longer article on why he's leaving, which is posted on his House website and linked, of course, in the show notes. Okay, let me read here from a New York Magazine article by Matt Stibe on why this is such a big deal. Quote, The only black Republican currently in Congress, Heard faced his most difficult re-election in the 2018 midterms, winning over Democratic challenger Gina Ortiz-Jones by less than 1,000 votes in one of the most expensive House races in state history. As the third Texas Republican to announce his retirement this week, Heard is joined by Pete Olson of the competitive Houston suburb of Sugarland and Mike Conaway of Midland, his decision not to seek re-election has stoked Democratic hopes and Republican fears that a retirement wave in 2020 will gut the party's chances to take back the House. That Heard is resigning from this seat in one of the few real swing districts in future purple Texas further cements those thoughts, as incumbents are far more likely to hang on to a seat than a challenger is to take it from them. And as a swing seat Republican of color who stood up to the president more frequently than the average rank-and-file representative, the GOP might not find a candidate as strong as Heard to hang on to the 23rd district, which is over 70% Latino. To take back the House, Republicans will need to flip 19 seats under Democratic control. Already, there have been eight resignations. End quote. Eight Republican resignations in the House. Yeah, that's, that's a lot. Expect more after House members return to their districts, spend a summer month with their families, and consider what the upcoming election cycle is really going to look like. Okay, let's talk debate ratings. Way back in June, you may recall that NBC, MSNBC, and Telemundo managed to pull in 15 million viewers on the first night and 18 million on the second. That second night in June was the most watched Democratic primary debate in history, though there are still Republican primary debates that beat it by a mile. Okay, so what happened earlier this week? Did we smash the record again? Did we take it back from the Republicans? No, no, not by a long shot. The CNN debates drew about 8.7 million viewers on the first night on TV, plus 2.8 million streaming viewers on top of that. That is down a good bit from June. Then, on the second night this week, CNN drew 10.7 million viewers on TV, plus 3.1 million streaming viewers. Both of those numbers are up from the day before, and perhaps that's due to the Biden-Harris effect. We saw a similar effect in the June debates where the second night had Biden and drew bigger numbers. Still, all these numbers are lower than June. While I am no expert in TV ratings, I have read a few articles on this, links in the show notes, and it appears that an obvious explanation is part of it. In June, the debates were on broadcast TV, plus cable TV on MSNBC, plus the Spanish-language channel Telemundo, plus YouTube, plus Facebook, plus Twitter. So basically, if you owned a box that could get internet or TV or whatever, you could watch that thing. But in July, the debates were on CNN on cable, CNN.com, and the CNN Go app, which didn't necessarily work for everybody, though I personally did not have any problems. In other words, the ability to actually access the July debates was dramatically limited compared to June, and I would expect that a cable-only event would attract fewer viewers. 
But that probably doesn't account for all of it. Although this is speculation, it seems likely to me that having seen that first debate, some voters were not excited by the idea of five hours of a repeat, with literally 95% of the debate participants being the same people. I'm curious how those ABC debates in Texas will do in terms of ratings, as they will presumably have both a smaller field and will be on a broadcast network. The Election Ride Home is sponsored by a terrific podcast called The Meb Faber Show. The Wall Street Journal named it one of the top five investing podcasts you should not miss. If you're looking to learn from the brightest minds in finance or you just want to know more about investing in a casual, fun interview format, this show is a must listen. The show is hosted by Meb Faber, who is CEO of Cambria Investments and an award-winning ETF manager. The goal of his show is to help you grow and preserve your wealth by giving you new investing insights and ideas. So check out The Meb Faber Show wherever you enjoy your podcast. That's Meb, M-E-B, Faber, F-A-B-E-R. You don't want to miss it. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, it is finally happening. Former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel is winding down his campaign. Though, as I record this, his website is still accepting donations, and I don't know for sure whether he has filed any paperwork to officially drop out. I did ask the campaign for comment this morning, but didn't hear back by deadline on what the actual dropout date might be. In any case, on Twitter, the campaign wrote this on Wednesday night. Quote, The DNC kept us off the stage tonight even though we qualified, but the hashtag Gravalanche is not over. We're going to keep going. As the campaign ends, we're going to help build institutions on the left which can grow power, shape policy, and create strong activists for the long haul. To do this, we are donating our funds to charity and forming the Gravel Institute, a leftist think tank. The Gravel Institute will write leftist policy papers with a particular focus on ending the American empire, reforming our democracy, and direct action by elected officials to end injustice and suffering. End quote. So, if we count August 31st as the end date, that means Gravel spent 116 days in the race, compared to Swalwell's 91 days. He is now the third Democratic candidate to drop out, though Richard Ojeda of West Virginia did so long before this show even began. This still leaves us with 24 major candidates by my count, though I do think we are entering a period of dropouts. This will happen as candidates grapple with the impending debate requirements, the reality of fundraising and spending, and, quite frankly, the availability of interesting House and Senate races that they could actually win. Okay, so listener question time that is very pertinent to that last story about Gravel. This next question came from Andrew Myers on Twitter. Quote, I have a question about candidate donations. Once a candidate's campaign is finished, what happens to the remaining funds? I heard you say some candidates transfer funds from previous campaigns, but is that a requirement? What if a candidate doesn't run for office again? 
For instance, if Biden does not get the nod, he will presumably not run for another office. What happens to the rest of his donations? End quote. Excellent question yet again. Okay, so this is another Federal Election Commission thing, and we're going to go back in time just a bit to explain how we got to the current system. In research, I ran across an article by my former colleague at Mental Floss magazine, Ethan Trex, hello Ethan, that deals with this topic. Reading from his article, quote, Until 1993, U.S. representatives who took office before January 8, 1980, were allowed to keep any leftover campaign cash when they retired. But a study showed that a third of Congress kept and spent millions in campaign donations on personal items like clothing, jewelry, artwork, personal travel, and dry cleaning. Embarrassed, Congress passed a law negating this custom for the House. The Senate already had provisions in place, so this wouldn't happen. End quote. Right, dry cleaning. So there's a link in the New York Times story in the show notes that goes into a bit more detail there. But basically, as we just heard, the rules used to be a lot looser than they are now. For most of American political history, the distinction between a campaign and a candidate's piggy bank was not exactly ironclad. These days, there is no personal use allowed for campaign funds after the campaign. Period. Okay, so again, let's just go ahead and, you know, answer the actual question about what candidates can do in the case that they do not run again. Reading here from an excellent article in Ballotpedia by David Borman. Quote, With leftover funds, former politicians can legally only use the money from campaign committees toward political or charitable purposes. They can pay for winding down costs, donate the funds to a recognized charity, donate to other politicians' campaign committees, donate to party activity at the federal, state, or local level, or do nothing, (laughs) end quote. So let's walk through those real quick. Winding down costs are, you know, like closing down the office and paying for movers to get the stuff out of there, paying to do something with the leftover merchandise and all that stuff. It can also involve some payments to staffers, but it has to be done within six months. The FEC offers a full definition of what winding down costs are, but the point is a campaign is a whole lot like a business, and winding it down involves a lot of work and some actual costs. Oh, and candidates can return donations, and that does sometimes happen, but that comes with its own costs like accounting and stuff. So my point being, don't hold your breath. Okay, so the next thing a campaign can do is give the money to charity, and that's what Gravel is doing by first establishing a charity and then donating his remaining money to it. I should point out, that's not what Gravel said he would do when the campaign started, or even a few weeks ago, but, you know, take that up with the campaign, I guess. Reading again from Ballotpedia here on some historical examples of a similar thing. Quote, After his retirement in 2013, former U.S. Senator Joe Lieberman used the remaining funds from his campaign account for charitable purposes, starting the Joe Lieberman Connecticut Scholarship Fund. He also spent some of the money organizing his personal and professional papers for donation to the Library of Congress. This option also includes creating a nonprofit organization with the leftover campaign funds. In 2008, former Representative Ron Paul used the remaining money from his presidential campaign to form the Campaign for Liberty, a 501c4 nonprofit. End quote. All right, next option is donating to other politicians. While this might seem straightforward, uh, because of contribution limits, it's actually extremely restrictive. At the federal level, campaigns are limited to giving $2,000 to each candidate's campaign each year. There are also state limits, which vary. 
So if you take this route, you could sort of imagine a candidate throwing a few bucks to, like, everybody. I mean, it's possible. You can also imagine if you had a lot of money continuing to donate that money slowly over time. But that does require that the candidate or some staffer or somebody sticks around and actually makes the donations and fills out the forms and all that stuff. And then we get to the big option, which is donating to the party itself. Now, this can be at any level. If you want to give to your state party organization or the national committee or your local party group, those transfers are actually not capped. You can give them all your money. So this is super easy to do, assuming that you have some love for the party, which is not necessarily true of every candidate in the race. I'm looking at you, Gravel. And the last option, perhaps the most fascinating, is that you can simply do nothing. <laughs> that money can sit in an account and accrue interest, and you can just wait it out. Reading again from Ballotpedia, quote, A former legislator does not have to do anything with remaining money in his or her campaign account. That was the case with Evan Bayh until 2016, as he rarely donated any money to candidates or party activities. In 2015, The Atlantic reported that Bayh donated to a handful of past Senate and House campaigns, but that these donations were largely offset because interest keeps replenishing Bayh's account as he spends and donates from it. The article also reported other former lawmakers who had campaign funds and had chosen to do nothing with them at the time. These lawmakers included former U.S. Representatives Joe Kennedy II, Michelle Bachman, and Mark Foley. End quote. So, this option exists because, you know, the government can't really compel action, and it's an interesting and sort of weird situation, but, you know, that's how it works. Now, this does raise one final creepy question, which is, okay, so let's say you quit politics right now, but you still have money in some campaign account somewhere. One day, you as a candidate will die. And what exactly happens then? Well, one last time I will read from Ballotpedia. Quote, In the event that campaign funds are still available for a lawmaker or former lawmaker who passes away, those funds remain bound by the provisions outlined above. The person responsible for distributing those funds is the official treasurer of the campaign, end quote. So you can begin to imagine some real weirdness going on where you could have these legacy campaign funds passing down eternally through different treasurers, but I think it's probably way more expedient just to make yourself a charitable foundation, give the money to that, and then let the foundation do its work. That is way more practical because those charities are not bound by the same restrictions we just talked about. So, thank you for the question, Andrew, and I still have some others remaining on my to-do list. Please keep sending them in, and I will endeavor to answer them. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Election Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. All right, another long week over here at Debate HQ. I've been posting a few more pics to Instagram, and that handle is now in the show notes, so go check that out if you like. To be honest, you're gonna get a lot of flowers and cats, and if you're very lucky, a dog. So keep your expectations low, is what I'm saying. Now, my plan for this weekend is pretty complex. Me, a book, a cat on the lap, and a big glass of water. I hope you have a lovely August weekend as well. As always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all on Monday.